0: No woman in 2021 should die from what should be the most beautiful experience of that person's life, which is giving birth to life and a child. It's just incomprehensible that we still have women that are dying from an experience that should be so beautiful.
1: Hello, welcome to season two of Until It's Fixed. I'm Stacey Dove here with Callie Chamberlain. Last episode, we talked about some of the big challenges facing the health industry coming out of the pandemic. Christy Henderson, our very first guest of this season, talked about digital health tools and how they're being used today to start addressing some of those challenges, including a big one around historical inequities in care.
2: So today, we're building on the equity discussion with a topic near and dear to my heart, and that's maternal health. For birthing people, Giving birth to their child should be a beautiful, fulfilling, and transformative experience. But for far too many people, in particular birthing people of color, it's not always a good experience at all. So today, we're going to peel back the onion a bit to find out what is contributing to this issue.
1: So Callie, many of us are not familiar with the term birthing people. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Absolutely. It's a great question. So we use gender-neutral language when talking about pregnancy because it's not just women that can get pregnant and give birth. Transgender men may still have female reproductive organs and be able to conceive, carry a pregnancy, and give birth. It's also inclusive of genderqueer and non-binary people. So throughout the episode, you'll hear references to women and birthing people depending on the context of the conversation.
1: Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So I know this is an area that you've studied as a doula and do a lot of work in at Optum. But just looking at the research around maternal deaths, it's really striking. I read an article from Harvard Medical School that a woman giving birth in the U.S. today is 50% more likely to die in childbirth than her own mother was.
2: Uh, Yeah, it's absolutely a crisis. And I should point out that it's not unique to America. This is an issue worldwide. But I think it really shocks people to learn that even though we spend more per capita on health care than any other country in the United States, we're the only developed nation where maternal deaths are increasing.
1: Yeah, so the latest numbers show that 700 women in the U.S. die in childbirth each year. And the CDC says that two-thirds of those are actually preventable.
2: Yeah, and those numbers don't even tell the whole story. It actually reminds me of something that the Director of Reproductive Health at the CDC Rear Admiral Wanda Barfield said at the Optum Labs Research and Translation Forum about data. She said that the CDC is working on raising awareness and understanding and preventing maternal mortality in two ways, by making sure that there is strong data, and at the same time, of course, ensuring that women have access to quality care during their pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum. The bottom line is basically that stronger data can save mothers' lives.
1: And a common theme I'm seeing discussed more and more is the role that data plays in solving a
2: lot of healthcare challenges. It's crucial. And there are gaps. But the more recent CDC data shows big differences by race. Black women are two and a half times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. So equity clearly plays a role here. And at Optum, maternal health is one of our key priorities. This year, we allocated $1.4 million to five external organizations doing incredible work on the ground and also working internally to change how we provide care across our Optum clinics. The data is a huge reason why.
1: So help us better understand where do these disparities come from and how can we reverse the trend?
2: Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring on two individuals I know that are both doing really incredible forward-thinking work. They're two of our grant partners One is Dr. Natalie Hernandez, who is currently the interim director for the Center of Maternal Health Equity at the Morehouse School of Medicine, and the other is Ryan Adcock, who founded Cradle Cincinnati, an organization focused on reducing infant and maternal mortality in Ohio. Well, thank you both for being here. I'm really excited to have this discussion, and the first thing that I want to ask about is your organizations and what you're focused on. Dr. Hernandez, why don't you start?
0: Yeah, no problem. So I'm Natalie Hernandez. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Community Health and Preventive Medicine, and I'm also the interim director at Morehouse School of Medicine in our Center for Maternal Health Equity. The Center for Maternal Health Equity was established in 2019 with funds from the state to develop a center that would address the inequities in maternal morbidity and mortality, particularly experienced by Black women and women of color in Georgia. Morehouse School of Medicine is a historically black college, a medical institution located in Atlanta, Georgia, and our mission is focused on serving the underserved and vulnerable populations.
2: Amazing. Thank you. Ryan, what about you?
3: Yeah, my name is Ryan Adcock. I lead a team called Cradle Cincinnati, based here in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, Cincinnati had the second worst infant mortality rate in the whole country 10 years ago, And uh, thanks to that team and hundreds of partners who've been involved in this work, that is no longer nearly the case. We've had a 33% decline in infant deaths here in Hamilton County and uh, have expanded our focus to include efforts around maternal health and uh, family health as uh, we continue to um, think about ways of improving birth outcomes for our community.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. So my first question is, how did we get here? We are the only industrialized nation with a rising mortality rate. We have some of the worst birth outcomes. What happened? How did we get here? There's so many reasons why we got here. There's also been a rise in obesity,
0: diabetes, heart disease, and a lot of these conditions contribute to maternal mortality. Additionally, you know, we're just grateful to be in a country where women can work. And so because of that, women are delaying having children later in life than they're used to. And sometimes that leads to more complex conditions. So we tend to see a higher maternal mortality rate among women aged 35 and older and sometimes that rate depending on your age can be 2.2 times higher or 17.7 times higher as you increase in age.
3: I think what I might add is just a bit of perspective on how our country values public health or doesn't value public health and uh, you know I think this has been in a lot of ways an illuminating year for that. So I was raised by a former health commissioner of Cincinnati, my father, and a microbiologist, my mother, and was taught to think about health in this very societal way. And I think a lot of folks are raised to think about health as uh, eating your vegetables and walking enough, right? And those are very different things. And so, um, you know, I think people were asking questions all year about Um, why should I wear a mask if I'm not at risk personally? Why should I social distance if I'm not at risk personally? And from my perspective, there's just the wrong questions. And so when it comes to issues of maternal and child health, uh, we are a society that uh, often says we value uh, kids and we value moms. And I think um, not only these outcomes, but other outcomes and other ways in which our society doesn't invest in young kids and doesn't invest in families, I think we are better at saying that we value these things than we are at showing up and valuing them.
2: Mm. Ryan, what you're saying also makes me think about when we were looking at maternal health within Optum, a lot of the comments that we received from providers is that maternal health is also women's health. And unless that is prioritized, we will always have rising rates of morbidity and mortality. I'm wondering though, has it always been like this? Do we feel like it's gotten progressively worse? What are some of the factors that have maybe evolved to get us here?
3: It's it's long been true that when it comes to a lot of public health outcomes, you want to live in the present rather than the past. So almost any health measure you can think of, it's better to live in 2021 than it is in 1850, for example. I think the more interesting questions come in terms of who's it gotten better for and at what pace and who has it not gotten better for. And to give you one example here in Hamilton County, um, we've seen tremendous improvement in Black infant mortality rates recently. And that tremendous improvement means that the Black rates currently equal the rates uh, that white babies saw in Hamilton County in about 1970. It's really important to be asking questions about where is there improvement, where things might be sliding backwards. Um, And what are the core reasons behind that?
2: That's a great point. And I wanted to ask about that as well, as we're talking about the rising mortality rate as one rate versus how it is specifically experienced by people of color, birthing people of color. Do either of you have anything else that you'd like to add in terms of the disparities that we see in this space?
0: You know, there's been this legacy of racism, gender discrimination, and income inequities. And for instance, there's some places in Atlanta where just a few miles makes a difference in your life expectancy. And racism has been integrated into the structures of society, including policy, institutional practices, and cultural representations that reinforce racial inequity, particularly when it comes to maternal health. There's been forced sterilization and promotion of birth control among Black women. And then also this ignoring of Black women's pain, so much so that the Centers for Disease Control created a you know, messaging campaign about hearing her, hearing women. You know, there was um, a study done, I think, by um, Eugene DeClerc and his colleagues called Listening to the Mothers, and they found that more than 40 percent of participants reported communication challenges in prenatal care, and these were reported predominantly among Black or Hispanic women and uninsured women. So a lot of these injustices and these legacies of racism have played a really big role, I believe.
3: Yeah, maybe just add that in Cincinnati, we've asked a lot of uh, women for their perspective on that exact question, and they not only point to racism, but they point to a specific racism, which is racism within healthcare settings. Um, As a a white guy who has lots of experience in this space I still feel somewhat helpless in healthcare settings sometimes because of the power dynamic that's kind of built into that so I think our response needs to collectively be not some version of it's not me I'm not doing the racist thing but instead going tremendously out of our way to be as against that as possible you know and I've had the chance to shadow folks who I think are doing it excellently and who you know really start with questions like but what's going on with you today instead of diving into the blood pressure conversation right away or whatever, you know, and, and, and the, the kinds of conversations that that can lead to are very, very different and might lead to social workers coming into the room instead of another nurse coming into the room or might lead to, um, you know, extensive conversations about a domestic violence situation that's going on at home versus, uh, you know, let's just talk about your weight for a few minutes. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of work to be done. I don't think we can do it until we acknowledge that there's a problem and that it's maybe not always a problem that's rooted in like you're being a bad person. It is sometimes a problem that's rooted in, you know, we are all walking into every room with tons of history behind us and a lot of it not good at all. And we're all walking into every room with uh, a power dynamic of some way, shape, or form. And when you are the person who is fully clothed and has a bunch of numbers behind your name, and the other person is there for an inherently intimidating experience, then there's just going to be those kind of dynamics in the space.
2: Are there other ways you think that we might begin to heal some of that historical mistrust? I
0: think there are a lot of different ways. I think, you know, Like uh, Ryan mentioned, just having those conversations, you know, right now there are so many different types of training for healthcare providers, but I think we just as a society need to have training or start rethinking, you know, shared decision-making, you know, empowering communities, but also reinvesting and retraining different types of providers or thinking more about these team-based approaches and different types of communication strategies we can use.
3: One thing we've uh, tried to do, we have some folks on our team who are very good at at crossing what we call lines of difference. And uh, one thing we've tried in the past that's worked fairly well is what we call story sharing. And so we might bring five or seven black women into a setting where there are also five or seven medical providers. These might be nurses. These might be uh, doctors. These might be medical students. And we will pair folks up and spend a bit of time telling uh, personal stories based on a prompt. So a prompt we've used in the past, for example, is um, tell me when you first realized that race was a thing. You know, talk to me about your earliest experience of race. And um, the medical professionals, by almost definition, are frequently white. uh, And the women, by design, are uh, frequently, are almost always black. And so... What it allows folks to do is create a real sense of empathy to make sure that uh, people feel heard, feel listened to.
0: And I was going to say sometimes, you know, when we think about that whole healthcare experience, it also starts with that front desk office, right? The person that, you know, says hi and welcomes you right into the practice. Sometimes that can completely start, you know, your whole experience in a negative or positive way. And so that's why we, when we think about training, we even think about going to that level because it takes, as I mentioned, this whole team-based approach to care.
2: Those feel like effective approaches that both of your organizations have taken that have proven to work. What other things are working at your organizations?
0: So for us, we also do a lot of research. Um, Research is one of our pillars as an academic institution and how we feel it can inform outreach, education, policy, advocacy, and also um, just that understanding of what's actually contributing to these high rates. And so, you know, when we conduct research, we take it very much from an interdisciplinary approach where we mentioned we invite all stakeholders to the table particularly women and centering their experiences recognizing that women themselves are legitimate sources of data and that we should be highlighting their experiences throughout
3: One of the questions I'm guessing you're often interested in Dr. Hernandez as well is you know when might we intervene so yes it's great to get to a woman at the labor and delivery unit what if we got to her prenatally Okay, it's great to get to her pregnantly. What if we got to her before she was pregnant? And I think this question of weathering is really interesting because it starts to ask the question of what if we got to her when she was three years old? Um, you know, what if we got to her grandmother? You know, I mean, there's these kinds of conversations that I think can reframe a lot of public health issues.
1: I love how Ryan phrased that. What if we got to her grandmother? It's that kind of radical rethinking that can lead to amazing results.
2: I agree. Ryan and his team at Cradle Cincinnati are doing some amazing work around data, and I really love that they're centering it on the lived experiences of Black women. Their work with Queens Village convenes different people together, ensures that they feel supported, they have everything that they need throughout the experience of pregnancy, labor, and delivery, and they also center their voices in policymaking. So I'm really excited that we'll be partnering with them to scale this model to 10 new cities that also can take that framework that Cradle Cincinnati has and apply it to their most vulnerable birthing populations in whatever area they're in.
1: That's really interesting because often just modeling the problem and dealing with gaps in
2: data is extremely difficult. And I love that they are looking at lived experience as a data point. We actually talked a lot about that toward the end of our discussion. What does the data tell us and what might be missing from the data?
0: There's still a lot of unknowns. Again, as I mentioned, we we know a lot about these common causes of maternal death. So we know that it's cardiovascular conditions, you know, heart conditions and mental health. But we still don't know about a lot of these other influences because it's really hard to capture all of this data. I think, you know, we're, we're starting to do a better job but we still don't know enough. And, you know, we have these wonderful maternal mortality review committees that are determining causes of death. And now some of them include qualitative because a lot of this was based off of vital records. And now, you know, some states are going back and doing qualitative interviews to find out a little bit more.
3: If you, if you were to Google your state name, listeners, and uh, the words Maternal Mortality Review Committee, what you're likely to find is a report that was released maybe this year and has data in it that is through 2016, 2017, maybe. And so by the time we're looking at it, it's four or five years out of date. Solving that is easier said than done, but it's very doable. We do it in other spaces. And in fact, I can tell you uh, when it comes to infant mortality, what happened last month And so the reason it's important to get there is if we want to be asking questions about what's working and what uh, isn't working, what's worth investing in, um, we need to know quicker than four or five years. You know, it's possible somebody tried something in 2018 that worked spectacularly well, and then it got defunded by 2019, and we won't learn that until 2023.
2: How would we solve something like that?
3: We need to prioritize this issue, the stuff that gets real, real heavy investment is the stuff where we have better information, but you know, that is just a, another word for information. So do we want better information about this issue? Yes, absolutely. We do. That's not free. And so yes, we need investment in community based solutions that are going to help drive change in this, but we also need investment in the stuff that's not as fun to talk about like better data infrastructure.
0: Yeah. And I think also if the conversation, Callie is, You know, a lot of people would be like, oh, well, 700 women a year die. That's not a lot of women. But what people forget is for every seven, one woman that dies, there are 50,000 women that are affected by some type of severe maternal um, morbidity. And to date, there's still little that's understood. And we want to make sure that we, you know, look at these severe maternal morbidity cases that we look at near miss audits all near misses should be interpreted as a free lesson, as an opportunity to improve a service of quality of care provision.
3: Those of us who work in healthcare or public health, I think can learn something from the airline industry when it comes to this notion of rare events. So uh, 700 women a year, imagine if 700 people died in plane crashes on Delta planes every year. Uh, how does Delta avoid that? They have these processes in place that for the most part, take things like human error out of the equation. And in California, for example, they've put into place not terribly exciting, but very good processes um, that basically say if uh, a hemorrhage is starting, if it looks like it's starting, if it's headed in that direction, then you follow these rules by the letter. You do it every time. You do it at every institution. And that has saved bunches and bunches of lives in California and it's being spread around the country now. So. It's, uh, you know, sometimes just the matter of, of standardizing what we know works. And to Dr. Hernandez's point, you know, not, not accepting, oh, it's just a few deaths. No, if that's your mom, if that's your sister, if that's you, uh, these, are, these are not acceptable outcomes. And I don't think we live in a time where we have to feel like they are.
2: Absolutely. So it feels like we're maybe defining maternal health too narrowly. Is there a problem with how we are thinking about maternal health and defining it? I think
0: to Ryan's point, and and what we've both been talking about is, you know, we what maternal health is women's health. You know, women's health is maternal health. We need to be thinking about it from sort of this lifespan approach. You know, what are we doing to invest in women? Um, how are we contributing to education? To you know, how are we dealing with food insecurity? I think like right to Ryan's point, maternal health is too late. It really needs to be focused on women's health in
2: general. Is there anything else that we need to be doing as an industry or society to address this crisis?
3: I'll maybe go back to this notion of of power dynamics. And I think, um, you know, at the root of solutions for health inequities generally is listening to the folks who are experiencing these things what are you doing in your community to make sure, in this case, that Black women are at the center of solutions for maternal and infant mortality? What are you doing to make sure that? Um, and so what does it mean to be at the center of those solutions? Are they making the decisions around funding? Are they making the decisions around strategy? Is it a safe space where, um, you know, they can say the things that need to be said I won't pretend like uh, everybody's got the, the, the solution and or just be waiting to be waiting heard, but, but you know, we're going to get a lot closer if we start listening to a diversity of voices.
0: I, I totally agree, Ryan. I think, you know, oftentimes, particularly for myself, I know it's a podcast, so you can see, but I'm an Afro Boricua from the Bronx. And, you know, oftentimes, particularly in academia and working with my colleagues, I'm bought always in as an advisory capacity, instead of what Ryan mentioned, being at the head of the table, equitably being engaged in these conversations, because I know my community. I am a woman of color. I know my own experiences. I have worked in with these communities. And so trust me to also figure out those solutions. Trust me to be a part of those solutions. Trust me to be culturally responsive, to have accountability, to know about what communication strategies work. You know, I, I, and I think it, again, it takes rallying everyone to be involved.
1: People like Dr. Hernandez and Ryan make me more optimistic that we really can turn the ship around on issues of equity, including bringing maternal death rates down in the US.
2: Me too. And if anyone out there is interested in learning more about Cradle Cincinnati or the work that we're doing with Morehouse School of Medicine, check out our press release that went live earlier this month. I'll include it in the show notes.
1: You know, I keep thinking about what Dr. Hernandez said, that maternal health is too late. That seems to be the common refrain. It's about treating the individual, not just a pregnancy or not just a condition, but really considering the whole person and where they come from and putting them at the center of care. That's when we'll really see the needle move.
2: And we have the will to do it. We have the tools. We're developing the partnerships, getting better data, and trying all kinds of new things. We can definitely do this.
1: You know, and it's going to be good for everyone. Part of a healthier world is helping birthing people be healthier, especially if they become parents, and a more thoughtful system that, like Ryan said, really leans into diversity and inclusive care practices that take the entire whole person into account.
2: What a setup! That's the direction we'll be going in our next episode. I'm excited to hear more about approaches to supporting doctors and clinicians and helping those at the point of care be more mindful about factors like race, gender, and income levels.
1: I think mindful is a great word for it, and we'll explore that topic through the lens of the LGBTQ plus community, a group that we haven't talked about yet, but that also suffers from bias and discrimination.
2: And when it comes to supporting healthcare for individuals identifying as this community, there's so much work to do.
1: We hope everyone out there enjoyed today's episode. And we're actually going to end with another piece of the roundtable where we asked Brian and Dr. Hernandez some rapid fire personal questions. Please join us next time and remember to subscribe. I'm Stacey
2: Dove. I'm Callie Chamberlain. And this is Until It's Fixed, a health innovation podcast from Optum. Thank you so much for listening. So I'll ask a question and then both of you just respond with quick answers. How does that sound?
3: Great. great.
2: So first question is, what drives your passion for what you do? Lived experiences.
3: Um, Love for my city.
2: What is giving you hope right now? The future generations.
3: Uh, uh, My team on a pretty regular basis.
2: Did you have any aha moments or any further clarity during the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic? absolutely I think I, I always knew
0: about inequities but I think the whole racial reckoning really did aha for me and and just really it changed a lot of how I wanted to approach things moving forward
3: uh, I've, I felt um, insecure maybe not with good reason but I felt insecure in ways that I haven't before in my life I felt threatened by The world around me and felt like it was dangerous to walk outside my door in a way that I had not personally experienced before. And I think that's given me a new empathy as I see that lots and lots and lots of folks in America have had that feeling throughout their entire life for a whole variety of reasons.